Well, this morning, uh, we are going to dig into the closing verses of the book of Jonah. So if you have a Bible, I invite you to open to Jonah chapter 4. If you've got it on your uh, phone or, or tablet or something, you can open up there too. And we are wrapping up not just this series, but this really surprising chapter. And we said it was surprising because we, we've tracked with Jonah through this book. And, and uh, it opens up where God calls Jonah to go do something. He says, Jonah, arise, leave your, the comforts of home. I want you to go to this people. I want you to preach the gospel to them because they need it. And Jonah says, no. Jonah runs the other way. He's like, God, I'm not going to them. They're not our people. If they get stronger, they might take us over even further. And so he runs from God. And uh, he, instead of going uh, north and, and east, he goes south and west and hops himself on a boat. And God sent a storm to kind of rock the, <laughs> rock the boat a little bit. Uh, Jonah found himself in the water, uh, assured that he would drown. And then God sent a what? I got it. Sorry, it's a little loud out the windows. You got to help me out here. A big fish, uh, which is a crazy story. But if God created the world and God did the miracles we read about in the Bible, then if God wants to send a big fish to save someone, who am I to say, no, you can't do that? So uh, then Jonah spent three days, three nights in the belly of the fish, and it seemed like it might have taken that whole time. He probably expected to turn in, I won't say what he expected to turn into, but he probably didn't expect to get out of that fish. But at the end of three days, we, we have this prayer in chapter two where Jonah says, you know what, I actually need God's grace. And so he, he prays, and the fish... Um, puts him, deposits him back on land, and Jonah gets off, probably wipes off the other fish bones and the kelp and the, all the other things and tries to get the smell off himself. And, and God comes to him again and says, Jonah, go to these people and preach because they need to know who I am. And this time Jonah says, yes, with an asterisk. But he goes. He actually listens. He goes and he preaches, and the people respond which is crazy because remember that he went to Nineveh, which is in the, the kingdom or the empire of Assyria, the strongest empire of the land. This is like, these were the big guys that conquered and, and, and kind of ruled the known world at that point. And Jonah from this small little Israel with a, a, you know, a powerful God still, went in and said, hey, listen, repent. Evil is on the way or, or, or judgment is on the way because of your evil. And they said, oh, tell us more about your God. Okay, we'll repent. And you would think that Jonah would be excited about this because God just did something amazing that doesn't make sense, that doesn't make human sense. Obviously, God has intervened. And what does Jonah do? He pouts. He complains. He runs out of the city. He sulks. And in the first few verses of chapter 4, he yells at God, says, God, I knew you would do this. This is why I didn't want to come. How dare you show grace to those people? Now we're in the second part of this. You remember, maybe we, we wrapped up last, last week at the end of chapter, or in the middle of chapter 4, where, where God kind of um, takes Jonah's anger. I think God shows us throughout the text that he can take strong words from us. We, we don't need to, he knows what's in our heart, so just, just, just say it, right? Like, and God kind of comes back to Jonah and just asks him, hey, are you actually in the right to be this angry about this? Is actually, are you actually okay to be angry at me for rescuing people? And Jonah doesn't answer that question, but as we pick it up in verse 5, we see our pouting prophet and our sulking servant back at it. 
So let me read it. I'll pick it up. Uh, Jonah 4, verse 5. I'll read to the end of the chapter. So Jonah left the city. That's how he responded to God's question. Hey, is it okay that you're angry? God, I, like, he leaves. And he found a place to the east of the city. And he made himself a shelter there. And he sat in its shade to see what would happen to the city. Then the Lord God appointed a plant. And it grew over Jonah to provide shade for his head to rescue him from his trouble. And Jonah was greatly pleased with the plant. When dawn came the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked that plant, and it withered. And as the sun was rising, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on Jonah's head so much that he almost fainted and he wanted to die. And he said, it's better for me to die than to live. Then God asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? Yes, it's right, Jonah replied. I'm angry enough to die. So the Lord said, You cared about the plant, which you did not labor over and did not grow. It appeared in a night, and it perished in a night. But shouldn't I care about the great city of Nineveh, which is more than 120,000 people who cannot distinguish between their right and their left, as well as many animals? Let me just uh, pray as we jump into the text here. God, this uh, closing, these closing verses of this, this book... Um, they're heavy again, and I pray that you would open our hearts to hear what you have to say to us through them, um, that you would speak to us, that you would challenge us, that you would convict us, but you would also remind us of your, your loving kindness and your grace and your compassion. Amen. So our sulking, pouting prophet leaves the city. And we're not totally sure of the timing of all that's going on here. We aren't really told too much, and I, I don't think it really matters necessarily. But we know that when Jonah went into the city, his message was to be that, hey, in 40 days, the city is going to be overturned. So maybe we have some kind of a window of how long he's been around. Um, but we can sort of piece the story together uh, roughly, which is enough. It doesn't matter if it was in one week or, or six weeks or whatever else, I don't think. But we have Jonah arriving at the city, taking a day's journey into the city, and then he starts to preach. He gives this message. It lands. The people believe him. The Lord is at work. And the city goes into repentance. That's chapter 3 again. Now it's about this time where Jonah seems to get this inkling that, hey, this isn't going as planned. These people were supposed to reject the message. God was supposed to send a fireball and just obliterate the whole town. And I was supposed to go back happy that we don't have enemies anymore. And so it's somewhere around here probably that we, that we see Jonah angry at God in the first part of chapter 4. And that is, again, where God asks him, do you have any right to be angry about this? Which, again, is a, is a great question for us to think about when we get a little uh, perturbed. Do I actually have a right to be angry about this? And so Jonah leaves the city, and he heads east. And I've, I've told you many times before, there are no wasted words in the Bible. Uh, so when the text says that Jonah heads east, if we go, go throughout much of the Old Testament, whenever someone is heading east, they're actually going away from God. That's kind of the, the underlying symbolism of going east. So he's trying to run again from God, builds himself a little shelter, which uh, you may recall when the when Israelites were walking through the desert, they built themselves little shelters to wait for God. And so he tries to make this little shelter to protect himself from the desert sun and the wind, and he waits, as it says, to see what would happen to the city. He's still waiting for that, that pillar of fire to come. He's still waiting for that destruction, that punishment to come. 
Yet God hasn't given up on the city, and God hasn't given up on Jonah either. And I suspect even though Jonah is pouting and running and sulking and all the things, and he's, he's, he's in the wrong in a number of places, I, I, I bet God's question is still ringing in his ears as he sits in this half-hearted makeshift shelter. Is it actually right for me to be angry? And I think he tells himself, yeah, it's okay, it's okay. But that, it, I mean, we know that sometimes when God asks us something, until we answer the right way, that question just keeps digging in the back of our minds. Is it actually right to be angry? And this is the spot we find uh, where, where Jonah, and it'll, get, it'll be a, a lesson in humility for us and actually a comfort for us as well. One writer says, often we give people the impression that when we, we, we come to Jesus, when we, when we follow the Lord, when we are, Jonah's God's prophet, right? So when we follow him, everything should be rosy. There should be no more problems. We should understand everything. We should automatically be in tune with God's will. It's not hard, but it's actually sweet to do the things God asks. And as we watch Jonah, we see there it's not true. And if we look at our own lives, I suspect we understand that life didn't get remarkably easier as soon as I started following Jesus. But more often than not, this writer says, the opposite is true. In the New Testament, Paul speaks about uh, two men battling within him, the old man and the new man, just trying to, the, the old ways that we were used to and the new ways that God's calling me to, there's this fight, and I, why do I do the things I don't want to do? And Jonah shows it too. We can recognize our need for God. We can turn towards him. We can do the best we can to obey him and still have sin in our lives. That's the humbling part. I don't know about you, but how I, I can't even count how many times I've said to myself, you know, man, I should be over that by now. This, this struggle, I should be done with this by now. This, this piece that I don't understand, I, I should have some clarity on that. I should ha- have left these habits behind. I should be more mature in my faith by now. Why am I not there yet? But we can also take great comfort in this, knowing that, that God knows everything that goes on in our hearts, but it does not exhaust his love. He doesn't run out of patience. And he continues to take his rebellious children by the hand. Hallelujah, praise the Lord. So we now have one of these rebellious children, Jonah, sitting in a little shelter, waiting to see what God's going to do to Nineveh. And rather than God take out his judgment on Nineveh at this time, God decides to use an object lesson to get at Jonah's heart. See, God hasn't left him alone, even though Jonah is running again. God will continue to care for Jonah. God will continue to tug at Jonah's heart and continue even to provide for Jonah. In the next couple of verses here, you'll notice that repeated phrase, the Lord provided, the Lord provided, the Lord provided. It's a kind of a constant theme even through Jonah. We heard this back in chapter 1 where the Lord provided, the Lord kicked up a storm, the Lord provided the great fish. And in the next few verses, we'll see three times where the Lord provides in his object lesson, a plant, a worm, and a scorching east wind. Now, all of these remind us that God is the creator and he's in control. God is the creator and he is in control. And so in just a couple of verses, we get this rapid fire sequence where God takes control of the situation. First, he sees his prophet pouting in a little uh, booth that he made, trying to hide from the, the sun, and so he provides a plant, something to rescue Jonah from his discomfort. Obviously, the shelter wasn't doing a great job. 
He needed more shade. So God plants, uh, sends this plant. It grows up. We're not sure exactly what kind of plant it is. Again, it doesn't matter that much. There's a couple options, but it grows up and it offers a great amount of shade. And Jonah is extremely happy. This is like over-the-top language that Jonah's finally excited. Everything's turning up. Jonah, really excited. Finally, something's going my way. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just so lucky to have this plant. Uh, and it's just going to come for me while I watch destruction come. But then we read that the next day, God sends a worm. And it takes a bite out of the bottom of that plant, and it kills it. And the plant winters, withers. And then as if that's not enough, as this plant is withering, the sun starts to come up. And God sends a scorching wind that just bakes the whole place. And we're told that Jonah starts to feel something maybe like heat stroke. If he's out in the sun too long, maybe it's 35, 40 degrees, plus the wind. And we can hear Jonah saying, unbelievable, I just can't get you break, can I? And we suspect that his anger probably turns towards God again. And once again, we find Jonah back in his funk with God. It would be better for me to die than to live, he says. It's fascinating that Jonah is once again feeling like the victim in the story. And he's again wallowing in this mix of self-righteousness. I deserve better. I deserve the plant. And self-pity of, oh, woe is me. But really, I, I hope it's okay to say this. I think it is. God's just setting Jonah up here. God's in control. He's been overseeing the circumstances. He's been working to expose some of these heart issues and the ugliness that's deep in Jonah. And so this is all a setup. And God comes back to him with another question. Maybe he's thinking, okay, the question I asked Jonah, is it right for you to be angry? That one didn't land. Jonah thinks it's still okay to be angry. So let's ask him another question, maybe a little simpler question. Jonah, my friend, you had a plant for a day and now you're just upset. Is it actually right for you to be angry about the plant. You didn't plant it. You didn't care for it. You didn't water it. You didn't fertilize it. You didn't deadhead it. You didn't do any of these things. Or is it actually okay that you're so angry? And Jonah says, yes! I'm angry enough to die about this. And he steps right into the trap that God has set. And so God says to Jonah in that last section there, showing his compassion, showing God's compassion, Jonah you cared so deeply for this plant. You feel sorry for the plant. You're sad that this plant withered. It was here one day, it was gone the next, yet, it, yet you attached your heart to it. You're so emotionally invested in this dead vine. But again, you didn't plant it, you didn't care for it, you didn't prepare the soil, you haven't watered it, you didn't do anything except enjoy the shade for a day, and you're so deeply angry about this trivial thing. And then he says, now Jonah, look at this city, this one you're waiting to be destroyed. Look at this city, this great city. Earlier we said the language that, that, that God uses for the city is that it's, uh, it, it's in an exceedingly great city that actually belongs to me. He says, Jonah, look at the city that's filled with people who don't know their right hand from the left. He says, Jonah, they're living in such a deep spiritual darkness that they cannot find their way out. He says, Jonah, there's a, there's a mass of people down there. There's a, we read 120,000, whether that's actually someone did a census and it's 120,000, maybe. It might just be that, that that's a number that represents like a lot. 
Because Jonah, there are a ton of people right below. You're talked about a plant that died. There are 120,000 people who are spiritually blind. They've completely lost their way. They know something's wrong with life, but they, but they don't know how to fix it. And they can't fix it. Then God hits them with the last question. Shouldn't I have compassion on such a great city? Shouldn't I care about such a great city, Jonah? The word compassion that's used here is a word to, that means like uh, to grieve over someone or something. It means to have your heart broken for something or to, to weep for it. And so God says to Jonah, Jonah, you had compassion for this plant. You wept for it when it died. You, you were angry about this plant when it died. Your heart was attached to this plant. You, 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 were, you were ached and grieved by it when it died. God says, Jonah, you're weeping for plants. I'm weeping for the city. And for God to, to take on language like this on himself, that, that, that any deity at that time, probably from that time to now, would take this language of compassion and longing and, and heartbrokenness for its creation was unheard of then, it's unheard of now. Yet this isn't the only instance that we have this language for God and God's heart for the world in the Bible. It's, it's, it's everywhere. Right early in Genesis 6, we, we read that, that God's heart was filled with pain when he saw the evil on the world and because of the wickedness and lostness of people. And this really is something unique about the Christian faith, that God has compassion, that a deity has compassion on creation. See, God doesn't need us. God doesn't need anything to be happy. He's, he's perfectly happy in himself. That's who he is. He doesn't, doesn't hope that there's enough people on earth that, 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 that sing songs to him and, and boost his ego so that he can be happy. That, that's, that's me. I need people to boost my ego. That's not God. And yet, we read about God's compassion, his heart attached to creation. And it actually doesn't make sense, does it? Tim Keller says the, the only reason this can be, the, the only answer for how this can be is that an infinite, never-ending, an omnipotent, a completely powerful, self-sufficient, doesn't need anything else. The only answer is that an infinite, omnipotent, self-sufficient, divine being loves voluntarily. God has chosen to love his creation. He says, I love this analogy, the whole universe is no bigger to God than a piece of lint is to us, and we are smaller than a lint on that lint. And yet God voluntarily attaches his heart to us. Jonah, shouldn't I care for them? And that's how the book ends. We don't, we don't have a, a resolution. We don't know how Jonah answered the question. We don't know how long he sat in that booth. We don't know how long he, he waited for something to happen. We don't know if God's object lesson to him and comparing his heart for the plant and God's heart for, for the, the world and, and the city, if it ever got through to Jonah. We're just left with this, this question that God asked Jonah and then God asks to every person who has come after Jonah as well, and that's us. 
And the question is, do people's souls matter to you? I've said a couple times in this series, I, I wasn't, uh, wasn't mentally prepared for how hard this little text was going to hit. I kind of knew the story of Jonah. I knew the outline. I was like, this is going to be one. I know that the Gary's going to love the good fish story. You know, the kids are familiar with part of it, so let's go at it. But man, this one goes to the heart, doesn't it? Do people's souls matter to me and to you? Let me ask this question. What's your plant? What is it that is that has grabbed your heart, that has attracted your attention, that, is, that you, you've been so exceedingly happy that you have, that you didn't plant it, you didn't grow it, you didn't do anything for it. Let me ask the question a different way, if I will. Is there anything that I or, or we are more concerned about in life than seeing unbelieving people become committed followers of Jesus Christ? Is there anything that I'm more concerned about in my life than seeing people who don't know Jesus come to know Jesus? And if we're honest, I suspect we can all agree with one writer who said, as soon as I asked myself that question, I did not like the answer. Because it wasn't very quickly before the question went from, is there anything? And quickly became, how many things am I more concerned about than seeing people come to Jesus? How many things are there in my relationship to time and finances and gifts and freedoms and, and other things that, frankly, not only have my heart, but I'm prepared to, to pay attention to that are more important to me, that appear to be more important to me than those who have never heard the great message of salvation through Jesus? When Jonah was upset at God, he used God's name tried to use it against him and say, God, you're supposed to be like this, but you're doing something else. He said, Lord, I knew you would be gracious and compassionate. That your heart breaks for your creation. That's, that's who God is. That's the God that we serve. Sometimes I, I, I think I know. Sometimes I know we have this wrong picture of God and we, we see the judgment of God, but we don't always see the compassion of God. We serve a God who has voluntarily attached his heart to us. I'll say that a bit clearer if I can. God loves you. You. This is his amazing grace and compassion. I don't know who this quote kind of originates with, but I've used it before. I'll use it again. It says, grace, God's amazing grace, means there's nothing that you can do to make God love you more. And grace means there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. God loves you. This love is throughout the Bible. It's, it's in the Old Testament where typically we kind of, often we think, well, that's, that's angry God in the Old Testament. And then we get to the New Testament, we got gentle Jesus, meek and mild. But no, this love is all the way through. There was a, a, a professor at Princeton once that, that went and looked through all the times Jesus' emotions were mentioned in the New Testament. And if you, you, you read, he, he did express a lot of emotions. Some of the, the older Jesus films and stuff always showed stoic Jesus with eyes that never blinked and always on a mission, always spoke in monotone and never really had any fun, but he just kept going and going. But Jesus told jokes. I bet he was hilarious to be around. 
I bet like I bet the like the pranks he pulled on the disciples. I mean, if you're camping with guys for that long, I mean, he'd know their blind spots, right? He's Jesus. But he showed a ton of emotions. Anyways, this this professor looked at all the times his emotions were mentioned. And by far the most typical statement of Jesus' emotional life he found was that Jesus was moved with compassion. Literally, he was was moved from the depths of his being for the world he saw around him. An example of this, Matthew 9, 36, when Jesus saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were confused and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. I think we could take that same language and and, and tie it back to Jonah, where God says, Jonah, look, they're confused and helpless. They're like sheep without a shepherd. Shouldn't I have compassion on them? And where Jonah went outside of the city to hope uh, and witness its end, to witness its destruction, Jesus would go into the city later to die on a cross to save it. And this is what we celebrate with communion. We, we look at Jesus, and when we do, we see all the goodness of God in human form, all the compassion of God. Now, this isn't to say there aren't consequences for sin. There are. That was the accusation Jonah threw at God, right? That, that God, these people have done wrong, and they should get punished. But because Jesus went to the cross and he died for our sins, that's how God's justice is expressed. Every sin was was punished and paid for on the cross. And because Jesus went to the cross and died for our sins, that's how God can be infinitely loving because he took that punishment on himself. And it's okay, it's okay when there are times that we find ourselves confused or even angry at God. We've got the Psalms. Some of those Psalms sound pretty upset with God at times. It's even natural because we cannot wrap our minds around all the things of God because we're mere humans. But to stay in that angry position the way Jonah did, that's where the damage is. That's where it comes from. If we stay there, we're missing out on the gospel, that God loves us. God is gracious and compassionate, and he loves you. And God wraps up this letter asking, how can we look at anyone, even those who who, who look different, who think different, who believe different, who practice differently, how can we look at anyone without compassion? Let me pray, and then we'll take communion together. God, thank you for this morning, and thank you for this time that we've had together. Thank you for this little book. We spent six weeks here, but I feel like we could spend six more and still have work to do. You'd still have more to reveal to us. I pray that we wouldn't um, move on from it too quickly and just get on to the next thing, that we would sit in the, the, the discomfort of what you've asked here in these last few questions in the last chapter. God, I pray that you would show us our plants, the things that make us exceedingly happy, that are, that are good gifts from you, but nothing more. I pray that you would help us to have your heart for people, I pray that you would um, similarly break our hearts with compassion for the world, that you would help us to see those around us who are, who are living uh, lost, 
like sheep without a shepherd, who don't know the right hand from the left, who are, who are in a spiritual darkness and they need your light, Jesus, to come. God, thank you that you care for us, that you love us, that you pursue us, that you rescue us, and that you make us new. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.